When we start building an e-commerce business, sometimes we're thinking about the now and not the later. And we should be thinking about the later because despite all your sales and the quick cash that e-commerce can bring us, the real value and the real asset is being able to sell your business. Today, we have a guest, Chris Schipferling, who is an expert in this, we'll say, but he's an expert in a little different way than a lot of the, uh, the experts and the content you see out there. We're going to explain you know, what he does, how he does it differently, and he's going to give us some really good actionable advice for how to handle a potential business sale all the way to how we set up our business at the very beginning. Stay tuned. It's going to be a great episode. Hi, I'm Tim Jordan, and at every corner of the world, entrepreneurship is growing. So join me as I explore the stories of successes and failures. Listen in as I chat with the risk takers, the adventurous, and the entrepreneurial veterans. We all have a dream of living a life fulfilling our passions, and we want a business that doesn't make us punch a time clock, but instead runs around the clock in the AM and the PM. So get motivated, get inspired. You're listening to the AM PM podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome again to the AMPM podcast. Today, we have a guest, Chris Schipferling, who uh, he's going to talk about his story in just a second, but he's a little bit of an outlier in what a lot of us think is like a very similar industry, which is the folks that buy and sell businesses, right? And the reason that I brought Chris in is because we're seeing a lot of headlines recently about, we call them aggregators or roll-ups. They are the companies that are basically buying businesses or even sometimes buying individual SKUs, and there's a lot of them. And they've made big headlines all the way up to Wall Street recently for different valuations they're bringing in. And they are, I would almost venture to say, flooding the market with marketing, and they're calling every Amazon seller trying to buy their stuff. I actually have an Amazon account that I've never sold anything through. I just use it for user permissions. And in the past week, I've gotten two emails from an aggregator saying, we love your product. We love your sales. We'd love to talk about buying your business. I'm like, dude, I haven't even sold anything. So I know that's been a hot topic lately. And it does beg the question, like, what am I building here? How much is my business worth? Is it sellable? How do I go about selling it? Who's looking out for me? And I think that where I became interested in Chris's content and the relationship I have with him is because he does things very differently. And I think he does it in a way that allows especially the brand owners to have a higher degree of, of success, a bigger win, right? So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me on. So I know there's a lot of people that um, that have come from different you know, backgrounds in e-commerce, and I know you have a big background in you know, banking and stuff you can talk about, but you also, starting in about 2015, were an Amazon seller, correct? Yeah, I was. I uh, was was a executive general manager for for a company based out of Barcelona, Spain, and um, I had about a half a million dollars of inventory that uh, was between collections and retailers didn't want it, and uh, I had to find a way to get rid of it. And uh, that was during the the FBA gold rush uh, back in fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. And so, you know, as I've joked with you before, there was no executive class from Princeton or Harvard or uh, Kellogg to uh, to learn Amazon, and so it was just. School of Hard Knocks and uh, and lots of Manny Coates and Kevin King on a podcast, <laughs> learning how to optimize listings, understand advertising, and really just trial and error. Yeah, I always thought it was interesting when you said that one of the first pieces of content you started kind of digesting was the AMPM podcast, you know, it, back when Manny it, was man. hosting it. And, it's all circuitous. <laughs> here we are on the AMPM podcast, right? So, yeah. so, so you kind of started selling on Amazon because you kind of needed an escape valve. Like you needed a way to get rid of this inventory. And obviously based on what you're doing now, that really changed your life because now you're hundred percent focused on e-commerce where you weren't before. 
So give us kind of the quick history from, you know, starting to learn to sell on Amazon to what Global Wired Advisors yeah. is now where you're the managing director. And for those of you listening, the, the reason that I love getting this background is when you understand the background of, you know, the experts that we bring on, you understand why their opinion matters and maybe how they gain their wisdom. So you take it seriously. So under that context, Chris, if you would just give us like the quick story of, yeah. hey, I can I can sell this stuff on Amazon to Global Wired Advisors. Yeah. And I mean, quickly, very, very quickly, you know, prior to that, prior to that, I worked as a sales and marketing executive in, in real B2B type companies, ranging from 22 million up to half a billion in baby and baby products and toy. It was a very antiquated industry and still, unfortunately, continues to be slightly antiquated. So always worked with Vendor Central. I remember working with Wayfair when they were CSN stores, by the way. That's a real throwback. Um, I've never even heard of that. Yeah, they were CSN stores. I remember getting a phone call from, I think it was employee number like five. Uh, he was actually a local Charlotte guy that became a um, a buyer, like the main buyer for CSN. And uh, yeah, I think that was like, like back in 2008, maybe like seven or eight. So maybe even earlier. But anyway, so always had that experience of, of real operating, trade marketing, you know, product development, working within lots of different functions, in a larger business. And then yeah, so told you about the the Amazon. That was a real, I'd say, kind of turning point um, for for my career. And then from there, I actually uh, went on to become a consultant for a couple of years, helping enterprise um, and small to medium sized businesses formulate digital strategy. Because really, I, I didn't learn just Amazon Central. I went, I took it a step further, and I learned digital marketing. Right, I learned and, and put my head down and really became a student of digital marketing. A lot of it was derived from I was just kind of tired of buyers' opinions. <laughs> when, when it comes to deciding what goes on the shelf. And I wanted that direct conversation mm -hmm. and handshake with the consumer. So um, I, I won't go through all the details on how I met my partners, but uh, we're all here in Charlotte and through happenstance and mutual connections. I actually met my three partners. They already had a firm uh, that was uh, focused on traditional businesses called Providium Advisors. Um, and uh, I, they, we all met and, and realized that there was a strong opportunity. We anticipated that the market was going to shift in the next decade. And we had lots of really strong conversations about the why and, and, and really, and then we developed a thesis. The thesis was, you know, this sector, uh, e-commerce concentrated businesses in terms of uh, choices when it, when, when, it, when it comes to selling their business and going to market, um, the process and the ability uh, was very weak from traditional business brokers. That's not just in this space, it's also in, in the traditional business space as well. Traditional business brokers always have had a very different type of process than an institutional investment bank uh, that runs M&A a completely different way. And so our thesis was, hey, you know, let's bring Wall Street to Main Street, right? And you know, let's bring the process, let's bring that ability and that acumen and let's give sellers a real, a, a fully optimized choice, you know, when it comes to Frankly speaking, selling your largest asset you're probably ever going to own, at least, you know, in, in one of the largest liquidity events, um, a milestone for, for everyone, right? And so let's, let's optimize that process. Um, and so, yeah, we started Global Wired Advisors. My, my three business, my three partners all came from the, the Bulge Bracket Investment Banks. They worked at Wells and Bank of America and City and... Uh, Bayview Asset Management and various credit hedge funds and private equity firms. And so coming with that really strong operating and, and understanding Amazon, understanding digital marketing, and then also with that 
really strong financial engineering background. We started Global uh, just over three years ago, and uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a great ride. The sector now, as you alluded, is seeing lots of of newly minted capital flowing, and uh, we've got lots of good views and opinions on that too. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting where you came from because when I think of most of the brokers and the aggregators and the you know even a year ago, if I wanted to sell my business, I would have gone to people that didn't really have any experience in finance or they didn't have an experience in brokerage or asset management. You know, they were Amazon sellers that grew a network and they're like, Hey, I know some guys that might want to buy your business. Correct. Right. So it's very interesting when you're thinking about, you know, coming from asset management and wealth management and, you know, true investment banking, which is really what we should be thinking about when we go to sell our business, because the people that are buying it are buying it as an investment. Right. And a lot of times from like the bottom looking up, we don't see that. So I think uh, for those of you listening, you're starting to understand maybe why I have Chris in here is he comes from a little different perspective, but he also is an e-commerce seller and knows digital marketing. So it's yeah. a very, very unique perspective. Thank so you. knowing what you know, Chris, yeah, let's talk for a second about the state of the union when it comes <laughs> to selling your business, because so everybody true. right now, yeah, everybody's talking about sell your business, sell your business. But, you know, just in broad terms, talk about what's happened over the past six months in this field and kind of give us a lay of the land. Yeah. Past six months, you've seen just a a complete inflow of of venture backed uh, capital, you know, mostly debt funding that uh, that has created a lot of funds and private investment vehicles um, to to acquire uh, FBA businesses and run them through what they would consider, you know, a strong operating team um, to to then grow that brand. Um, you know, there there are now, I believe, seventy five of them, and and they're not slowing down. We we actually spoke to a source that um, uh, has been part of the debt funding, and just the other day, and you know, he gave zero signal on the telephone that there was any slowdown at all. Um, so it's going to keep growing. They are poaching every single seller they can get their hands on. You know, they won't say this. It's just the it's just the reality. It all started as an arbitrage opportunity, right? It all started as, hey, I can come in here, I can discount and I can devalue these businesses because three years ago, no one cared about them. And lots of these businesses have just kind of gone under the radar. They've built up, you know, had real staying power. They've built up some level of brand and they were also cash flow positive, but they went you know, highly under the radar from large, call it sophisticated capital, because the Amazon platform risk to sophisticated capital funded through private equity funded sponsors, it's it's still a very real thing. And so, um, which I'll get to actually in just a moment, because we have a view on where it's going. But so, you know, some of these large aggregators, and they came into the space and they said, this is an arbitrage opportunity. We can devalue and discount the multiple we can make these sellers retain as much risk as possible and purchase their companies. And the minute they purchase them on their balance sheets, they bought it at a three and it went to a 16 almost immediately because that was in effect the valuation of the fund based on you know the, the, the most current raise that that fund may have done, right? So while they say, no, we're not in the arbitrage game, the reality is that they, they were. Now, I think things are changing with competition. I think that they're forced now to think through some more strategy. Um, I do believe that sellers are getting a lot smarter because they're getting poached now by 15, 20, 25. You know, you got two more to come. <laughs> 
and 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 sellers are looking at, at going, okay, this is more than just one guy asking to buy my business that has a fund and can close quickly. That was a year and a half ago. We all know who I'm talking about. Now it's 75 of them that I could quote unquote sell to. And I think that, you know, at, at that at, at this point, I think we're at a good intersection now with with sellers who have a really strong business and a very healthy business. We can get into those tenants in a moment. Having representation now is is more important than it's ever been. You know, someone who can be the jungle scout and the Sherpa to take you out there and make sure that you're going down the right path and you're getting put in front of the right buyers. Um, but then we also have another stronger view, um, which we can get into in just a second, and I'll I'll preview it. You know, if you look at a geological, if you go if you look at all the geological eras at the Grand Canyon, right? Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? And and you see all the different rock eras, the geological eras. These funds represent about that much in the history of M&A. And there's going to be a lot more capital that's about to pour into this space from more traditional funded sponsors. It's about to get even more exciting for sellers. Well, that's interesting. So you, you've been talking about aggregators and that's a term that I used in the intro. And uh, basically just to step back for a second, aggregators... Yeah are essentially companies that have one operations team and try to roll up all of their resources to create a higher degree of efficiency where they can buy brands, they can buy businesses, operate them centrally and make them more profitable. Is that a very good basic description? Yeah, absolutely. And the way sometimes we interpret things here in the office and trade in trading terms and trader terms, and we talk about things in terms of like alpha and beta, right? And so the alpha, the alpha in the operate is really in the operations. It's the thing that 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 they're leading, they're really leading on. And the brands, products, ASINs, whatever it is they're purchasing is really the the beta at that point. And so really what I'm saying is I'm complimenting what you just said. And I agree with you that they're they're putting and even the funds that are being raised, the 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 venture debt and even the Man, even some of the more traditional funded sponsors like Advent International, um, when it came to Thras and you know the investment they made of two hundred million dollars, they're, they're putting mo- almost all of the chips in in the operating team. That's really what they're doing. You know, um, that aggregator in particular went from you know zero employees two years ago to over seven hundred and growing, right? So they're putting a lot of of alpha in that operation. Whereas to contrast, a private equity firm puts all the alpha in the actual company that they've purchased because they have a clear path in three to five years to to sell that. They're not holding any company. They're bringing it in, pouring in, in, you're injecting growth capital. They're injecting lots of working capital to go and purchase more inventory. And then they're effectively scaling the business by putting a strong management team within that company, within that portfolio company. And then they're looking to flip it to some middle market private equity for a more strategic three to three to five years from now. That's the difference. Okay. So let's talk about brokers because, you know, these aggregators, they didn't exist more than a year and a half ago, right? At least yeah. not, you know, on a, on a large public scale. So I remember I have bought and sold websites on Flippa. Yeah. I know that like quiet light brokerage has been out there for a while. So explain the difference in, in very, very basic terms between a broker yeah. And like an aggregator. 
Yeah, I mean, look, you know, kind of going direct, going direct. There's, there's, there's two distinct differences. I mean, one, you know, if you if you use a a, a traditional business broker, you know, that process is going to be very passive. Um, it's not a very, they don't they don't take much of an active role throughout the entire process. You know, part of it is they haven't been classically trained on how to really run an optimized M and A process, and so really, it's it's all very quick, right? Engagement letter signed, three days to put together of some marketing materials and a template and businesses out to market through typically through an email list, right? And also through a website, they'll say, hey, we take it to some of our connections. Reality is that's just really good talking points. Um, you know, so so that's kind of a, a broker process. It's, it's gonna be very passive. Once you've identified, you're gonna be talking on the phone to a lot of the buyers and in essence, really selling your own business in most cases. You're also going to be quarterbacking most of the due diligence and, and closing. Your broker might be there to help once in a while, but for the most part, it's all passive. They're not quarterbacking that process. Um, again, because they haven't been classically trained to really go and run an optimized, um, sophisticated M&A process. So that's using a broker. And I mean, one of the advantages, though, with all the aggregators is if you choose to use a broker, you at least at least you are signaling to the aggregators that you care about this process. Going direct to an aggregator, all you're really saying is my business going to you or 74 other funds or really anybody else, I'll get the same thing everywhere I go because I think my business is commodity. That's what I believe. I'm no better than corn futures or steel in, in public markets, right? <laughs> and so Going direct then to an aggregator, you're just going to have a less than, you're going to have a less than suboptimal exit process. And you're going to absolutely, so, I can say this confidently, you're going to leave chips on the table. So let me, let me slow down just for a second and, and set a little bit of stage. I know you feel strongly about this and I agree with what you're saying. We also know that there are a lot of companies, I have friends, personal brands, we have past guests on this podcast that have recently sold their businesses to aggregators. So if you have recently sold a business to aggregator, you heard what Chris just said, you're panicking going, oh man, I screwed up. Remember, there's a lot of ways to win. I think what Chris is saying is there are definitely better options to win more, right? Absolutely. So if, and, and another thing that's interesting, this is just my opinion about aggregators, because there are so many aggregators and they have a quota to fill, like they have money that they have to spend, like they Absolutely. have to buy stuff. So with so many of them out there, they're starting to bid a little bit higher and a little bit higher and a little bit higher. And I have seen, even recently, some aggregators, folks, that frankly do not know what the heck they're doing. They're oh, purchasing scary. businesses that they should not be purchasing. Agreed. They're buying businesses that are complete train wrecks. So there is an opportunity, guys. If you have a business that's a train wreck and you just need to dump it as the thing's yes. falling apart, maybe there's a great opportunity for aggregators because they just have to buy businesses and, and the market is shrinking because there's so much competition. So there is a time and a place for these, but if you have a legitimate business, I think there definitely is something to say about going direct to somebody whose profitability is largely going to, as a company will depend on paying you less for your business. Right? So think about, you know, every time I pull out of like the Lowe's or Home Depot parking lot, I see those signs on the side of the road, sell your house for cash. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Those guys, <laughs> That's they're exactly not going. It. They're not going to give you top dollar for your business That's because right. they're in money to make. They're in business to make money too. They're not going to do you a favor. That's so if right. I'm going to sell my house, I'm going to hire a real estate agent. 
That's right. And this real estate agent is going to get three or six percent, depending on how the deal you know operates. But that person's going to come in. They're going to advise me on my house. They're going to say, no, if you were listing it for a quarter million, you need to list it for 290 because here's the comps. If you paint these walls and change this carpet, you're going to get a little bit more value out of this. Like they work as an advisor. And what I have seen, at least in the real estate market, so asset brokerage market, which is essentially very similar to this, is when you have someone that's a professional that's looking at it, they could advise you on how to get top dollar. And frequently their fee that they're going to charge you is a wash or it's even less than the additional money that you make by having them. So when we think about aggregators, I don't mean this sounds so cheesy, but think of them as like a, we pay cash for your house, right? And sometimes if your house sucks or if you need money right now, or if you just don't want to go through the hassle, fine. That's but right. if you want to get really top dollar, you need representation that knows what they're doing and has a vested interest in getting you a higher valuation for your asset. Because right. they get a percentage, right? Which is all negotiating the deal. So I hope we've set a good stage for those of you listening. Like, oh my gosh, what, what's going on here? What are we talking about? All I know is I hear about these aggregators and everybody's making money and yada, yada, yada. And then I think there's a second step to this, Chris, that I'd like for you to talk about just a tiny bit, which is, yeah. and frankly, this is why I wanted you on the podcast, is I was so impressed, and I'd never seen this before, but so impressed with the way that you and Global Wired Advisors handle this you're talking about like your flippers and your, your brokerages that, Hey, we'll, we'll list your thing on our website or email list three days. We'll plug some numbers in yada, yada. But what I've seen you doing out there in the, in the world of e-commerce like kind of quietly, right. Flying on the radar is you're talking to businesses and you'll even straight up say, Hey, you're not ready to sell right now because if you're worth X amount right now, if you will do these six things, yeah. come back to me in nine months and you'll be worth 80% more. So you're actually advising them on how to grow, not just trying to make a quick buck, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. Is that different, do you think, in the world of, of brokerage and normal? And does that like like tactic, that mentality, that that attempt, does that come from your world of like true investment banking where, you know, if you spend a little bit more time, you can increase that asset value? Yeah, I'd say all of the above. You know, look, there are some there are some very, you know, a lot, at least, at least in this space, and it, it's also the same in traditional business brokerages. You know, a lot of guys become business brokers because they owned an HVAC business, and then they really liked the broker that they worked with. And since it's a 1099 gig, anyways, no one's hiring anybody per se. They become a broker, right? This is all this. Nothing's new under the sun. This is the way it's always been done in you know Transworld and Sunbelt and some of these larger business brokerages. And so it's it's very similar in this space, except you know folks owned an e-com business, right? And then they 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 so so they're qualified and they do give advice. And I've heard some of the advice that they've that they've given vicariously through some of our clients, and it's it's good advice. I think the difference, the the massive difference is, you know, look, our our operating experience comes from, you know, a place where. I worked in I worked in companies where you just you, you had to be highly competent in what you did from a from a sales and, and marketing perspective, right? Um, I worked around folks who who were executives at P and G and were executives at some of the largest CPG brands in the in the world. And you know, one guy I actually work closely with is now running, uh, or excuse me, the COO of, of Airstream. You know, it's like these were the types of 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 interactions that I had on a daily basis, and so. Um, having to having to and analyze and assimilate companies, I just I come from a more trained eye of 
looking at things in, in a more strategic sense, right? That's just on the operating side. And that also bleeds into my three partners who look at everything from a very strong financially strategic sense. And, and it's more than just, hmm, let me give you five subjective things I think you should do. It's, hey, let us get our hands around your data. Let us digest that data. Really understand where the company is today. Let's talk about your goals for the business. And let's figure out, let's figure out what the capital markets are going to say about your business right now and how that aligns with your goals, right? And so we're really thinking from a perspective of the buy side. That's really important. We're thinking about Hey, if I put this in front of XYZ private equity firm and, you know, so-and-so who I just spoke to last week at, at said XYZ private equity firm, and I heard all the, the tenants and criteria and things they really like about this other business and, and, and how they broke down the company and where they really assign value on, the, on this particular business over here, I'm able now to use it as a proxy because we've done this, you know, uh, literally, I mean, hundreds of times. I can take all of this information and now apply it to your business on, on, on a customized view of where are you now and what are your goals and what do we need to do to get there? So the advisement, let's get specific. It might be, um, look, you are very, very weak when it comes to a specific strategy around your advertising. And you've been trying to do this on your own for two or three years. It's not working. Here's why those metrics don't line up. Here are the metrics that the buy side is going to be uh, very critical of. And here, here are some resources for you to speak to and implement almost immediately. And then we start to get very, then we start to get into a quantitative analysis. Look, if you improve your tacos by 3%, that improvement of tacos by 3% is actually going to result in this much more uh, top line revenue, which will be represented now in your EBITDA line. And oh, by the way, this is what it would look like. This is how much more cash from a quant, you know, quantifying, right? This is how much yeah. more cash you're probably going to get from the table. Yeah. But that's just one exercise amongst many. So. Yeah. So uh, those of you listening, this is not, you know, meant to be like a huge sales pitch of Global Wired, right? That's that's not the objective here. That's but right. Chris exactly said and stated what I wanted you to hear, which is their entire business model is based on helping you improve the valuation of your business and it helps their top line. So I think that's important to state because the next things that I'm going to ask Chris, I think are very, very unbiased and they're very, very much based on experience, right? Like this is what they do day in and day out is help people increase the value of the business. So moving forward, Chris, we know that, Hey, we all want to sell this asset. We all want to have an exit. We all want to make a ton of money here, but you see a lot of mistakes too. You yeah. see a lot of, you know, boneheaded stuff and you see a lot of stuff that might've seemed like a good idea and who would have ever thought. So quickly kind of run through a list. You don't have to go too deep into any of them, but talk about some of the biggest mistakes you see people making in the way they operate or run their business that either causes them to not be able to sell it or it decreases their value. Yeah. I mean, I think pure and simple, um, gosh, and, and the way I'm about to package and present this is going to sound very, it's going to lean a bit more basic than say specific because every business has some type of, you know, uh, specific detail that just matters. Everything's customized. So trying to kind of elevate and, and, and go about 30, 30 or 40,000 feet. Um, Look, one of the things that we see, and 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 it's 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 a bit mind blowing. It's it's hard to do through the pandemic, but they've actually never visited their Chinese supplier. I mean, 
you know, if you read anything about Chinese culture, having a relationship with your supplier is the most important thing you could ever stink and do. And it will drastically help the health of your business everywhere, literally everywhere, right? So, you know, never hopping on a plane and only doing Zoom meetings. While as a Westerner, you think, oh man, that's, that's, that's good. We're okay with that. The reality is nothing will beat, especially in Chinese culture, face-to-face -face meetings and regular visits with the factory, period. Now you may make your product in America, same principle, face-to-face, -face, working very closely with your supplier. It's going to help tremendously because what is the supplier? What, that, what, what, what will that help, right? So kind of naming the, the specific things. Well, one, COGS, that's the easy one. Um, you, you know, a lot of these factories, what you're not aware of is they've got unbelievable amounts of people as teams from engineers to product development to um, designers, industrial designers. They've got these giant teams as part of the factory. And, and when you build that relationship, you're able to really tap into a lot of those resources. And for a small business, that's a big deal, right? So being able to tap into those resources, yep. uh, adjusting COGS, getting some COGS relief. And then also too, it's just pure unadulterated capacity. You know, when you've got a relationship with a factory and you're really in need of more inventory and more product, you can work with them when it comes to say trade terms and trade credit. That's always helpful for your balance sheet and also just for your cash flow. But then also too, it, 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 you actually can get product over other people getting product. It's just that pure and simple. So a lot, that's probably, I'd say yep. kind of public enemy number one, where we just, you know, they just don't have a great relationship with their supplier. And that does change valuation because if you're going to buy or if someone's going to buy that company, man, if, if the supply chain falls apart, that business is dead. Dead. Right? dead so they need the to know that there is some, some congruency, some, some strength and branding when it comes to prioritization with that factory. That's huge. I can give you an example, a very specific example. We had a trade about two years ago. Um, it was a direct-to-consumer stroller business. Um, it, it, it had an incredible product roadmap. The, the, the owner of the business was... Um, you know, an executive within the, 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 the baby product space, a former CEO of a very large uh, factory in China, um, you know, president, vice president, executive uh, vice president of sales for Evenflow, for Great Go, for just, you know, very large businesses. And um, so it was, you know, 80% Shopify, 20% Amazon. It had a lot of really good tenants to it. But one of the things that drove valuation up genuinely was the was the relationship with the supplier and the factory relationship that the business owner had and that the new ownership was able to gain because of what the what, what the business owner what what he uh, what he brought with the deal and that particular deal all in received and this was two years ago sold to private equity close to an eight multiple on that business because a it had wow. a lot of things that Hey, you know, private equity loved anyways. It had a real product roadmap. It had strong growth over the past three years prior. Um, you know, ownership was willing to roll equity and stay in the business. That's a big deal. But then when you started getting into the minutia, one of the one of the things that truly affected valuation was the relationship with the supplier. It's it's so stinking important. What are some of the other mistakes you see people making? Um, not paying attention to their gross margin in the beginning, right? You know, kind of coming, coming, coming to an exit and, you know, you look at their gross margin that bleeds into their net margin and you're 
sitting at 11, 12, 9, 8%. Um, that's not great. That's not a very, it's not a, that's not a strong business. Um, so that's another mistake, just not, not paying attention. And I think that actually bleeds into financial disorganization. That's a huge one that we see. Um, now, good news is we can clean that stuff up. We have an internal team of associates and analysts who, who do that day in, day out. And we also have external resources if it requires what we call a quality of earnings. But still, gosh, it really slows down a deal. It doesn't give you the right picture of where your business is financially. So it just slows everything down. We've got to really get our hands on it and truly understand what that EBITDA level is. Um, and also, too, you know, this is the biggest place in due diligence. You know, when you're actually going towards close that gets scrutinized is knowing your cogs, actually knowing what your cogs are. Uh, that's the one thing that, you know, when you're when you're really going through a strong, you know, strong due diligence and close, it's the one place a lot of acquirers will spend a lot of time on. Got it. One thing that I see all the time and, and some of the stuff you're talking about right now is usually thought about afterwards. Like people, especially in the e-commerce space, a lot of times it's not intentional. Like you accidentally find yourself as an e-commerce seller, right? Yeah. And, and I've done this myself It's I go, Oh man, that thing actually went better than I thought it would. And I think to myself, I wish I had set this up or structured it or been more diligent about this in the beginning. Is there really a high importance on how things are in the beginning? Or if, if someone's had the business for two years is like the last six months matter the most, or are people screwing up by not setting this thing up correctly from the very beginning? I mean, look, the, 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 the best, the best, most disciplined approach is setting it all up the right way in the beginning. Right. That's that's the best, most disciplined approach. And when I say setting it up the right way, you know, really doing your own due diligence on how how you should formulate the business, um, good research being done to, to understand which product categories you should get involved in, um, you know, just doing the, the right things, you know, from the start. But, yeah, I mean, look, if you get to six months before a close and you, you're talking to us, I mean, we're going to be able to identify very quickly what the bumps in the road are going to be. And then we can assign a time value on, hey, look, this is gonna, this is gonna take a year and a half to fix. Um, it may haircut your valuation by a half a turn. Are you okay with that? Or are you not okay with that? No, I'm not okay with that. Okay, great. Well, here's some resources. Here's here's your homework. Here are the things that needs to be fixed on that specific problem that the buy side is gonna see. Um, so yeah, that's that's so so there could be some call it grace involved prior to exit. Um, you know, six months prior to exit or 12 months or whatever. But look, man, the sooner you identify any of these bumps in the road and you talk to a professional um, about it, you know, someone who can give really good advisement, the better off you're going to be. How important is diversification? Because I know that there's a lot of people out there saying, hey, we'll buy your Amazon business, Amazon business, Amazon business. Great. But we also talked about the risk. Yeah. Because what if Amazon changes tomorrow? What if they yeah. re-index the way that you're showing up for a certain keyword? What if your PPC doubles tomorrow, right? So from a buyer's perspective, it's got, a little, got to be a little bit risky. Um, so yeah. how important is diversifying onto different marketplaces and then also starting to build your own audience through you know, your own website traffic and things like that? Does that really make that big of a difference when it comes to valuation? Uh, yes, it does, depending on how long you've been doing it. Um, so, and it also depends on the type of acquirer that you're putting your business in front of. So, you know, if you're only putting the business in front of say aggregators, well then clearly, you know, having a direct to consumer effort doesn't necessarily matter because they're only looking for 80% Amazon concentration. So it doesn't, doesn't matter, but they're going, but they're devaluing those businesses and they're discounting them. So you have a buyer base 
but they don't care about diversification. Where diversification really creates stronger, better value is when you've got enough history to show that, A, it's actually, it's actually very material to your EBITDA and to your top line. So it's showing real, like real numbers. But then what, what the waterfall from there is, okay, yeah, I've been able to prove that I can rotate away from Amazon and sell, say, direct to the consumer through my website. But then what's, what's important about that is the data that you're able to, to take from those purchases, right? You just have a, and, and, and look, no, you, no matter where you sell, you're never in control because you're always selling through someone else. You're either advertising through Facebook Ad Manager, you're either advertising through Google, you're selling through Shopify. I mean, very, very little people and no one really has full control over their business. So there's always a risk analysis around everything. But yeah, you're right. There is a there is a real view of Amazon platform risk. And a lot of it is just because of how sensitive Amazon can be when it comes to suspensions. But I'll tell you this, people, because of the pandemic, a lot of a lot of capital now is is starting to get a bit more liberal when it comes to Amazon platform risk. That's a good sign. That's good news. Yeah, that is good news. And another cool thing is there's a lot more information coming out about how to run your business, how to set it up correctly, how to diversify where you should and not necessarily where you shouldn't. Because yeah. frankly, we've got this like situation where as the market's becoming flooded for buyers, they have to advertise through content. So there are a lot of great resources to go and track this, uh, track this information down for all of you that want to, uh, want to potentially build a business to sell. I love the book Built to Sell. Love it. It's one of, one of the most influential books I've ever read because even if you don't want to necessarily sell your business, it gets you in the mindset of having a business that you could sell, meaning you're not in the weeds, right? You can actually go take a vacation. You can take a day off, right? But it goes deeply into helping understand what a buyer would want, which is to be able to just take it and keep running and making the money. And maybe they can even make it better, but they don't want that thing falling apart when you step out. That's right. Um, so Chris, speaking of content and yeah. speaking of more information, I suspect you have some. Where can people go to uh, to get some free advice? Yeah, man. So for majority of people, uh, they can go right to uh, Google and put in Global Wired Advisors. Um, for the 1% that uses Yahoo, you can still do the same thing and we rank. So that's that's good news. Um, GlobalWiredAdvisors.com. Uh, that's our website. You can uh, easily fill out, say, our valuation tool. Uh, so we have a pretty sophisticated tool that constantly gets updated with market information. Um, it's an 80,000 foot guide. Call us, give us our, give us your data. We'll give you a much stronger, better view. Um, yeah, we have a consultation form on there as well. You know, to your point about the sales pitch, you nailed it. Look, we're very, very, very altruistic and we're very helpful. I mean, of course we're, we're not, in, this isn't a charity business. We're not a 401c, but at the same time, you know, we love having lots of conversations with sellers and we love, we love being very helpful and we love providing resource. And I think, you know us now uh, pretty well, Tim, and I think you you could probably vouch for that. That you know when a seller when a seller comes to us, it's not about throwing an engagement letter in front of their face. It's about where are you, and let's meet you where you're at, and let's figure out what your goal is, and then let's provide a ton of good resources to help you hit that goal. Well, I'm very careful about who I bring on here. You know, I don't want anybody to get. Um, bad advice. And I don't want to, uh, you know, openly pitch businesses. And, and frankly, Chris, the reason you're on here is from the, from what I've seen you doing in the space, you have actually told more people, Hey, you're not quite ready to sell. Here's what I would go and do. Here's the connections that I will connect with. Like you have 
given more free coaching to people than you have, hey, let's sign an engagement letter. So I think that that means a lot. It's just the truth. So yeah, awesome. Well, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Well, you can't escape yet. I have one last question. This is the question I've I've been asking the last several episodes for those of you longtime listeners. Chris, you come from, you know, the banking world, so to speak. You've taught yourself digital marketing. You've taught yourself how to sell on Amazon and gotten into e-commerce. And that doesn't happen by accident. You had to learn. Yeah. And I love reading business books. Yeah. So if you went to your bookshelf right now and you had to pull one off the shelf to recommend to everybody to listen that made the biggest impact in your life when it comes to this business, what would that book be? Oh my gosh, man. Um, oh, and my no, God. no pressure, but everybody I ask instantly spits one out. So if you spend you know, too long thinking about it, we're going to think you're trying to curate the answer. No, I mean, if the answer is no, Dr. No, Seuss, no. just spit it out. My, my my mind, my stupid mind is having a, um, it's having what I call a brain fart. So give me one second, man. How will you measure your life? That's it. It's the most recent one I read. Um, I'm in a mastermind and, and we're going through several books. So that's why I'm having that brain brain fart. We're actually on the third uh, book of the past month, but how to measure your life by um, Clay Christensen, unbelievable business book. And it's all about you know, this guy is, a, um, uh, you know, he's a Harvard, Harvard graduate school professor uh, for many, many years, had a really remarkable career. And so he really talks about, he talks about the, how do you define success, both in your business? How do you define success at home? And, you know, I know that you're also uh, a, a husband, um, you're also a father. And so, you know, look, man, that's a, that's that's probably the toughest hat. Those are two of the toughest hats that I wear. And I've got all these things that are are vying for my attention and time. And, you know, having an 11 and eight year old while they're going through those those most critical, crucial growth years. It's all about taking intentional time to make sure that you you have real success at home while you're also trying to have real success in business. Phenomenal book. I'll probably it'll be on my list to read every year. The other one that was coming to mind was Good to Great. Um, you know, I, it was one of my first books that I read actually in business was Good to Great. And then also The E-Myth Revisited by uh, Michael Gerber. They're, that's a great book. So I've got several, man. The brain was jumbled. <laughs> yeah, the, the E-Myth, I see it over there on my shelf. I've got shelves all over the place. It's, it's amazing <laughs> how many books I have, and it's embarrassing, embarrassing how many I haven't read. My to-do well, list is big. The, the one, one, one that I actually learned from one of the be- biggest and best distributors in Canada um, back in the day, he introduced me to a book called The Goal. If you ever really want to understand true production and how to be efficient in supply chain, read The Goal. It's amazing. Goal. All right. Well, you've given us four book recommendations. Sorry, man. I appreciate I told you. that. That was the brain <laughs> part, <it>. man. <laughs> That's it. So much. Hey, we'd rather have more options and not enough. Well, thank you, Chris, for being on. Those of you that are listening, globalwiredadvisors.com. And if uh, if you like this episode, make sure to give us a shout out, share it on social media, give us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to, and uh, like it, thumbs up it, and leave a comment if you're watching this on YouTube. Thank you, Chris, for being here. Thank, thank you all for listening. And we'll see you on the next episode.